Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we can have the confidence of his uh, presence with us through all things. And we pray as we come to look at your word this morning that you might be cleaning us and shaping us by it, that we might long for the things you long for and long for you yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do take a seat. Uh, any farmers here? Fruit growers? So a couple of hobby farmers here. Uh, I wonder uh, if we were to come up with an agricultural metaphor for the Christian life, uh, what that might look like. Uh, I think many of us might like the idea of seeing ourselves as plants with God as the gardener coming along, caring for us, tending us, pruning us. That we grow in our own strength with God coming along and just fixing us up around the edges. We might not say that, but that's often how we live, often how we approach God. That we do things in our own strength and we just rely on him to get us over that last bit or to make things that little bit better. Would that be fair to say? A temptation, at least, to treat God just like an added bonus or the icing on the cake. But the agricultural metaphor Jesus chooses is far from that. In his metaphor of the vine, we're not individual plants, but we are branches of the vine. We're far from independent. We're entirely dependent on Jesus, the vine, as the source of all our life, all our nourishment, entirely dependent on him. Still, God the Father comes and tends us and shapes us and prunes us to make us more fruitful. But this is a much greater image, isn't it? One of an intimate, dependent relationship on God that leads to fruitfulness and joy. An intimate relationship in which we're united with Christ and through him with one another. Well, as we started last week looking at these farewell words of Jesus, these words to comfort and encourage his disciples as they're facing life without his physical presence amongst them. Uh, and as we said last week, these words to those first disciples are by and large his words to us because we too seek to follow Jesus in the absence of his physical presence with us. Last week in chapter 14, we saw Jesus' words of comfort, the promise of a permanent home in God's house in the presence of Jesus, the promise of the gift of the Spirit through whom we, God dwells in us, Father and Son. The promise of the love of the Son and of the love of the Father. And last week we saw in chapter 14, Jesus encouraged his disciples with commands. A command to trust in him and a command to obey him. And Jesus continues with similar themes through chapter 15. This time with commands to remain in him and to love 
Now, vines and vineyards were commonplace in Palestine, uh, and so at one level, it's no surprise that Jesus picked that as an agricultural illustration. But there's more to the choice of the vine as the metaphor here than just its commonplace. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is described as the vine or the vineyard. It is God who has planted that vine, God who has created the nation of Israel. And yet time and time again, as this image is played out in the Old Testament, Israel is found to be Uh, bearing no fruit or bearing bad fruit because of its disobedience. As a result, it faces the threat of God's judgment against it, that he will come and dig up the vineyard or destroy the vine. And yet, typically through those images, there's also the promise that God will restore his vine and his vineyard. So it's with this background that Jesus chooses the image of the vine to describe his relationship with his disciples. Jesus says, and this is the last of the I am statements, Jesus said, uh, I am the true bread, the bread that's come down from heaven, I am the good shepherd, I am the gate to the sheep. Here Jesus says, I am the true vine. In contrast to the counterfeit vine or the false vine or the failed vine of Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus is the true vine, the one to whom Israel pointed and the one who fulfills what what Israel was meant to do. Jesus is the true vine who now supersedes Israel in God's plan of salvation. Jesus is the one who faithfully fulfills what Israel was unable to fulfill. And so we see in Jesus now that God's people are not defined as being members of the nation of Israel, but God's people are members of Christ, members of the true vine, those who've put their faith in him. In fact, as Jesus identifies, there are branches that don't bear any fruit, those who are not true Christians, those who are not trusting in him. And there remains judgment for those who do not put their faith in Christ. But for those who do, they bear fruit. Those who remain in the vine bear fruit. And after all, that's the sole purpose of a vine, a grapevine. Right? We might grow plants for ornamental properties or uh, for nice flowers or uh, to shield out our neighbour's windows. But a vine exists to create fruit. And we are branches of that vine designed to create fruit. That's what we exist for. And so Jesus, as he fleshes out this idea of the vine, his first command is for us, for his disciples, for us now present as well, to remain in him. Have a look, verse 4. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Unless we remain in Jesus, we will not bear fruit. There are some people who seem to think, well, I can just come to Jesus for a kickstart in life and then crack on without continual dependence on him. Some might even do that, claiming his name. 
But Jesus says, if you're cut off from him, unless you continue to remain in him, we will bear no fruit. But there seems to be only two categories as Jesus describes this. Those, who bear, those branches who bear no fruit and those branches that bear lots of fruit, good fruit. If we remain in him, we will bear much fruit, is his promise. Indeed, in order that we might bear much fruit, the Father, the gardener, will prune us and make us more fruitful. Did you see that in verse 2? He, the Father, the gardener, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Pruning sounds fairly drastic and painful, doesn't it? And it may well be for some. But it's important to look at how God prunes us. You might note uh, where it says in verse 2 that he prunes us. There's a little footnote attached to that, which down the bottom of the page says, the Greek for he prunes also means he cleans. They're closely related terms. And so when it says God prunes us, Jesus goes on to say, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Being clean and being pruned are overlapping ideas, the same idea, I think. And so we are pruned... His first disciples were pruned, were made clean or continued to be clean because of the word that Jesus had spoken to them. Jesus' revelation of who he is and what he has done. And through that, they've already responded in faith. They've already, that Jesus has already taken hold of their lives through his word. And as we saw in chapter 14, uh, Jesus' words are preserved and taught by the Holy Spirit. First and foremost, through recording it in the, the testimony of the disciples in the New Testament that we have here, and continues to teach us by His Spirit as we come to His Word. So I think it's fair to say that the way in which Jesus... God prunes us, continues to be by his word. Not just the particular words of Jesus, but his whole revelation of the word, his word uh, in the Bible. So God cleans us by his word. Which means God may be doing that in you this very morning as we come to look at his word. And God's word prunes us, makes us clean as it encourages us, comforts us, challenges us, rebukes us, and humbles us. As we read the entirety of God's word to us, he can use that to shape us, to prune us, that we might bear more fruit. And if that is indeed the way that God can shape us and prune us, oughtn't we to seek that out? It reinforces the importance of us reading God's word by ourselves, in our connect groups, 
following it up ourselves, reading books, and indeed listening to sermons, being taught by it. So how is God shaping you this morning? Encouraging, comforting, challenging, rebuking, humbling. Indeed, Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus has said, uh, remain in me and I remain in you. And now he's saying, if you remain in me, my words will remain in you. That to some extent at least, Jesus remaining in us is by his words. And he makes a similar promise to the one back in the middle of chapter 14, that whatever you wish, whatever we ask for, it will be done for you in order that the Father may be glorified. And here, that we may bear much fruit. Now, how does this work out? Well, I think it's as we remain in Christ, as we take his words to heart, God shapes us by his word. Shapes us by his revealed, uh, by his revelation of himself, and that in turn will shape our desires to be more like his. Our will will be shaped according to his revealed will. And so the more and more that happens, the more and more obedience will become instinctive for us. The more and more that we'll want nothing except what God wants for us. And so the more we're shaped by his word, the more Christ's word remains in us, then we can ask for whatever we wish and it will be given to us that we might bear much fruit and bring glory to the Father. In answer to our prayers, God will use us to bring about his glory and his purposes and to bear much fruit in us. So as next week, as Graham explores the idea, what do we want from Jesus? Is that the title? Well, maybe we'll flesh out some of those ideas. What does that look like for our prayers in Christ to be answered? So, Jesus is saying, as we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. And that fruit will come in answer to prayer and in response to God's cleaning work in us by his word with the purpose of glorifying the Father. The way that Christ himself glorifies his Father is through us bearing much fruit. Well, it still feels like this metaphor needs a bit more unpacking, right? What exactly does it mean to remain in Christ and to remain in his word? Well, Jesus goes on. Verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So here it seems that Jesus is paralleling remaining in him with remaining in his love. 
in the same way that he remains in the love of the Father through obedience. So remaining in his love, loving him, and we saw this again last week in chapter 14, that loving Jesus results in our natural will to obey him. The more we love him, the more we will seek to obey him. We'll obey him as we believe in him, as we trust him, as we follow him, as we bear witness to him. Love for Christ demonstrates itself in our obedience. So surely this is part of the fruitfulness that Jesus is talking about, our loving obedience to Christ. I don't know about you, but obeying Christ isn't always easy, is it? Loving Christ is not always our first instinct. But what does Jesus say? Ask anything you wish and it will be given to you in order that we bear much fruit and glorify the Father. So instead of finding obedience difficult, which we will still continue to do, Our response to that is not to say, this is too hard, I'm giving up. But is to pray that God might do that work in us. To read his word so he might shape us. And Jesus guarantees if we pray that, generally or specifically, there might be an area of your life where you're really struggling, and Jesus says, ask anything you wish and it will be given to you so that you will bear much fruit. So often I think Christians give up on seeking to obey Jesus because it's too hard instead of resorting to prayer and the promise that he has given us. Now it seems to be my observation that obedience can be generated in two ways, right? Obedience out of fear but obedience out of love. Obedience out of fear leads, leads to oppression. But as Jesus reminds us, obedience out of love leads to joy. Jesus promised his followers his peace. He insists they remain in his love. And now he promises to share his joy. Have a look, verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And Jesus has offered that uh, just as he remains in his Father uh, in his love and obeys his Father, so too we are to love and obey him. And it seems that the grounds for Jesus' joy is his obedience, his loving obedience to his Father. And likewise, for those who obey him, who respond to his love in loving obedience... He offers that same joy. Now joy in this world, a fallen human world, can be at best fleeting, shallow and incomplete until we experience the love of God in Christ Jesus, the love for which we were created, until we know that mutual love of of the Father loving the Son 
and the Son loving the Father and us being brought into that as the Son loves us and the Father loves us and we love them in return. A mutual love that leads to obedience without reservation. Now the life that Jesus offers, the Christian life, is sometimes presented, sometimes unfairly characterised as just giving up on everything that gives us joy. Giving up on denying ourselves everything that offers happiness. But Jesus promises that his joy is greater than all that we can find elsewhere and stems from wholehearted obedience to his commands. We can chase after all the things that the world offers to give us happiness and contentment and joy. And we may may well enjoy moments of happiness and great joy, but they're passing and incomplete. Or we can follow Jesus in loving obedience to him and enjoy his joy. But I think as Christians, again, we often find ourselves in between. We want the things that the world offers and we chase after them maybe with a morsel of guilt because we're not following Christ perfectly. And so we end up chasing after that and chasing after uh, obedience with God half-heartedly and to be half-hearted in our obedience to Christ is to get the worst of both worlds. Jesus offers us great joy through loving obedience to him. Ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you in order that we might bear grapefruit for the Father's glory. Jesus goes on, having encouraged his disciples to remain in him, to remain in his word, uh, then he moves on to encourage them to remain in his love. Verse 12, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Remaining in his love, responding to him in loving obedience includes loving each other. And just by way of benchmark, here's, here's the example of how you should love one another. Love them as I have loved you by giving my life for you. We're not called to a convenient love for one another, one that fits into our timetable. We're called, for, called to a sacrificial love for one another. Elsewhere, Jesus talks about the need to love the outsider, love, uh, love your enemies. Here, he's particularly talking about love for the fellow believers, love for those fellow branches united through our... Um, Uh, through our life in the vine and we are to love one another sacrificially well what does that look like for us it's easy to love those who are like us right those who we know well those who we naturally gravitate to but Jesus doesn't put any of those boundaries on and that 
rarely calls for a sacrificial love. Jesus calls us to love sacrificially all our fellow believers. And for us, that means particularly in the expression of the local church, to love one another here. Again, in church, it's easy just to chat to the people we know, to follow up after the people we know, to care for them, to pray for them. But what about the others? The newcomer, those of a different age, those over whom we have responsibility for as connect group leaders, as as scripture teachers, those who have responsibility over us, those who teach us or lead us those who are different from us, who are hard to love. How are we to love them? And that can be hard, right? The thing about someone who's hard to love is that it can be hard to love them. And yet we're commanded to love them. But again, not just go off and do this. God equips us to do what he commands us. We start to see here, as Jesus fleshes out the idea of loving each other, more of the fruitfulness that comes through remaining in him. We start to see that our love for those who are not like us is an outworking of the God-enabled fruitfulness, an outworking of our obedience that leads to joy. It's really hard to love those people you don't know well too, isn't it? And so it's important, if we're going to be genuine about this sacrificial love for one another here, we need to ask God that he might continue to give us what we wish, a love for each other, a sacrificial love. And we need to know one another, to know one another's struggles, to know what we can be praying for one another, how we can be serving one another which involves committing ourselves to one another. We don't come to church or connect group first and foremost for our own sake, but so that we might care and support and love one another. So it involves committing to church, committing to a group, seeking out to get to know people over morning tea, over a meal, loving one another sacrificially. Jesus says... We are to love one another as he loved us. So is there something you need to do today? This morning even? Is there someone you need to seek out? Someone you need to... Maybe you know what you need to do. Sacrificial service for someone else here. Obedience can seem hard, can't it? Even motivated by a love for Jesus, it can seem really hard for us. But here's the thing. Jesus promises as we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. And here's something else. Jesus has chosen us to be in him and to bear much fruit. Have a look, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. 
This is my command, love each other. Christ has chosen us to bear much fruit. He calls us to be obedient to him. He has enabled us through shaping us by his word and in answer to our prayers. So are you being shaped, cleaned, pruned by God's word? Do you need to do that more? Do you need to pray that God might do that work in you through his word? Do you know the love of Jesus? Is that something you need to pray and ask that God might show you more and more Christ's love for us through his death for us? Do you seek obedience to Christ? Or is that something you need to pray about? Do you know the joy of loving obedience to Christ? God doesn't ask us to do this and leave us without resources. Christ is the vine, our vine, and as we remain connected to him through loving him and seeking to serve him in loving obedience, he nourishes us and feeds us and shapes us and bears much fruit through us. All we need to do is ask. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us in Christ. We thank you for his loving obedience to you. And we thank you that through that, we might know and be drawn into that relationship of love ourselves. Help us to know your love for us in Christ more and more, that we, we may respond in loving obedience to him. Shape us more and more by your word so that our will, our desire, is more and more aligned with your desire for us, that we might bear much fruit and bring you glory. And we thank you for the privilege of prayer and the promise that you will answer us in order to bring about great fruit in us. And so we ask that you might make us prayerful people who seek your dependence in all things and help us to love one another sacrificially as Christ has loved us. In his name we pray. Amen.